0: This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now, Let's get into today's episode. Welcome, welcome to Dr. Rob Fricker, who is a friend and a colleague. And today we are coming to you actually from the United Kingdom and not from the USA. So that in itself is a wonderful change. Welcome, Rob.
1: Hey, it's just fantastic to be talking to you, Yale. despite the fact that we are in the same time zone, but still a continent or two apart.
0: Yes, it feels at least a little bit closer. So, Rob, the funny thing is, I get sent this amazing document before I meet with any guest on the podcast, and I have known you for a very long time. I was trying to think how long it's been, and it's at least a decade.
1: It's over and a I was, decade,
0: yeah. It's, is it over a decade? Yeah, we it is. Used Unfortunately, to we, we
1: are that old.
0: <laughs> we are that old. We look exactly the same. I was trying to remember. It was generally an IFM conference that we were together at, And I was trying to think about what I know about you. And then I've got this extraordinary document that comes across my path. And I'm like, I've known you for a decade and I know you're extraordinary and I know you're changing the world. But actually, it seems like I didn't really know just how much. So before we launch into who you are, Rob, I want to tell a beautiful story about you where we went to the IFM conference in was it San Francisco? No.
1: I remember that one.
0: Now remember, where were we that you made me cycle?
1: Oh, yes, that was in San Francisco it was San Francisco. Yeah, we've got and you on we, my favorite vehicle. That's
0: right. So Rob's a huge cyclist, yep. a very serious, committed cyclist. I'm not, not my sport. And the day after the conference, I always take one day after a conference to see the town. Rob organized for a group of us to get bicycles, to rent bicycles, and basically took us on a very extensive ride across San Francisco Bridge into whatever it's called what's it called sorcery or something yeah very bad I mean yeah. I remember it very well I bet because eventually it was getting dark and I had to put my bicycle on a ferry as I wasn't going to get back to the hotel in time to like get my flight so that is my understanding of Rob the great yes. adventurer so actually it's not a bad place to start the great adventurer, because when I look at your career it's actually a little bit different from most practitioners that I interview on the podcast and I actually really want to focus on that. So let's start with who are you? What is your background? And then let's start getting into this journey that brought you to where you are now, which is the Alliance for Natural Health International, which is something I really want to talk about.
1: No, look, uh, fascinating. Well, look, I I wasn't trying to kill you that day on a bicycle. (laughs) But, you know, one of my mottos in life is one I've always subscribed to. If you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And so um, I've always loved the thrill of being on two wheels because a two-wheel vehicle is inherently unstable. And so you have to kind of work with balance and environment and terrain to try and keep this thing rubber side down. Sometimes it doesn't work. I've had some horrendous uh, accidents. I I used to do a lot on motorised two-wheelers. And, uh, of course, when you go down... And that was also because of the life that I've generally led, which is kind of going against the grain, testing things, trying to find better ways of doing things, whether that's been in areas around the environment or agriculture, food production systems, or healthcare. So I've always kind of had that side. And the adventuring side is also important to me. This this summer, I took my youngest kids, the, the ones who are still at home, I said, I'm going to introduce you to some 1970s backpacking in Greece and i happened to be 44 degree temperatures bushfires everywhere mm-hmm. and we had everything we needed in a backpack and we were camping and you know again that that's important but yes my my journey has been really one that originally i was destined to get into economics because that kind of side of things fell fairly naturally to me and i signed up to go to the london school of economics and It was my grandmother, my Dutch grandmother, who kind of knew how interested I was in nature. And with my father working and living in Indonesia a long way away, said, do you really want to go to the London School of Economics? And why do you want to do it? And it kind of really made me recalibrate what I was very, very... had always been interested in since a young child. So I was one of these kids who... Would be scrabbling around in the bushes, you know, looking for beetles and insects and trying to understand how nature operated, and so I ended up doing a degree, much to the concern of my my parents, originally in ecology. So I'm an ecologist by original training. I then went back and was a, the youngest tutor in ecology because I loved the subject so much, and I was sort of tutoring people who were. Considerably older than me. I then was due to go and do a master's at Imperial College, but decided I'd had some time out because I'd been in solid academic study. And I went to Australia for a six month break in order to cycle across Australia, by the way. <laughs> okay, um,
0: that's insane.
1: Yeah. And I got, I arrived there and I was immediately kind of disturbed by the kind of lack of coherence between. The white colonized society and what was happening both with the environment and also with Aboriginal people. And it was very strange. I met within two weeks. I met a lady who I subsequently married, who was a Torres Strait Island Aboriginal and started discovering the kind of Aboriginal perspective on nature. And I ended up after 10 years becoming one of the leading environmental campaigners in Australia. We stopped rainforests being taken down. We stopped a whole bunch of pesticides going into the environment. You know, it's interesting these days I met people and I said, do you remember when all the dairy farms in Australia were shut down? And they said, oh, yeah, there was a sort of problem with the pesticide, wasn't there? I said, yeah, well, I did that, you know. It was a <laughs> I, I I got a grant, a ten thousand Australian dollar grant, to study what we perceived would be a build up of organochlorine pesticides in dairy, because they were being used against a white fringe weevil pest, and we knew how organochlorine pesticides would bioaccumulate. And so, with my friends at Sydney University who were doing all the analysis, I set off sampling all the soil in these dairy fields, and then later on the milk, we presented this detailed report to the New South Wales Department of Agriculture and said, look guys, we think you've got a problem. And they then couldn't believe the results that there was these sky high levels of cyclodyne organochlorines in the milk because it was all in the soil and it was being used on an annual basis and of course the levels just building up because it bioaccumulates bingo they had to quarantine all the dairy farms and stop this pesticide being used so i did things like that for about a decade and then went back to pursue my studies at imperial college which were really in agricultural sustainability so did a masters um, got a distinction for that went straight into a phd and then into seven years of postdoc. And I did my PhD ironically at a time that my um, relationship was falling apart. So I managed to submit, I had a third year of research in Malaysia on some of the areas of most intensive pesticide use on cruciferous crops in the Cameron Highlands of Malaysia. And my um, head of my research group said, Rob, you've got so much data now. Why don't you submit your PhD before you go? And I said, well, because f- it would only be two years into the PhD, Rob, you have more than enough data. They've since changed the rules, and you cannot yeah. do a PhD. You can't do that years. anymore.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: So I did. I'm one of these people who did a PhD in in two years, and I can thank a, a relationship breakdown to that. I just worked. 24 hours a day almost. Can
0: imagine.
1: And then I basically, so my my field is is what's called multi-trophic interactions. So I'm really into complexity and trying to unravel complexity in agroecosystems. And the fascinating thing about being at a place like Imperial College is that you have such a wide group of people. You've got a lot of medics, and you've got a lot of biologists and ecologists, and you've also got a lot of engineers. I never really had a lot in common with the engineers because they've got a very kind of myopic way of looking at things. But I was also, this is, I I guess, one of the reasons why people like Jeff Bland and I saw eye to eye very early on is that I've always been concerned about the silos. So, you know, and and it was actually that siloed mentality that caused me, after seven years of postdoc, when I was offered a permanent position at Imperial, to say yes twice and no three times. So it was one of the most difficult decisions I was ever to make, which is once you, you know, developing your own research group in a major university like that, it's kind of that for life. I mean, that is, and and you're putting more and more publications on shelves and you've really got to look at, is this the kind of impact that you want to leave in the world or do you want to do other stuff? And I'd, over the years, really come to the conclusion that that most of the things that we need to do to solve some of the world's biggest challenges, like hunger, like inequality, like habitat destruction, we actually have an idea of what to do, and we don't necessarily need a new technology or a new article in a nature journal to tell us what to do. A lot of it is linked to you know, peculiarities of human behavior. It's to do with greed. It's to do with a need for control. It's to do with a capitalistic business model. It's this view that we need to keep always growing. In nature, we see balance achieved by kind of steady state systems. And human systems, you know, we we all do this. We always want something bigger and better and And, of course, yeah, and and as we do that, combined with population growth, we end up destroying everything that's around us to the point that we are now in the midst of the sixth great extinction, and the average person on the street doesn't even realise it. We're in a cataclysmic ecological crisis now, of which the climate change side of it, particularly the carbon side of that, is only a very small part of it the habitat destruction and the destruction of biodiversity is the bigger part of it and is directly linked. So, you know, now that we can start to see a common thread to all of this, that this sort of loss of biodiversity has a similar kind of impact in terms of the planetary consequences, as, as well as the human consequences. So i I. I Became quite well known. It was one of the articles that I was interviewed for in a major UK newspaper, The Observer, which doesn't exist anymore, that I was very outspoken about the problem of dietary simplification being at the root cause of chronic diseases. And we need to diversify diets to resolve that. Now, you know, many of us now are, are really yeah, yeah. very aware of the science that the underpins teacher, yeah. all of that. Yeah. So let me um, ask
0: you. Sorry, I'm going to. Yeah, yeah. So So, what's so interesting to me is this road that you walked, which was around planetary health, ecology, climate. I mean, that's very much so. Where was your intersection into my world? When you love complexity, obviously human health is part of this. When did you discover? Jeff Bland, functionalist and integrative. When did you get an interest in human nutrition opposed to kind of planetary health?
1: I, I really, really, by understanding the link between it, it, was, it was meeting a group of oncologists at an Imperial college do when we had been doing a lot of work looking at glucosinolates and other compounds in because the, the model system I was working with were cruciferous vegetables we love
0: crispers yeah. i mean i have a swimsuit or swimming i don't know what you call it in the uk yeah that has broccoli there you go it. it's called there tripping you. broccoli it's like yeah. my favorite yeah. so we, i, we I really
1: for my research i used to always just make nothing but all the various you know dishes from from <laughs> different parts of the world I, I i'm a very keen cook as well but you know we've really been looking at how plant breeding programs over the last 20, 30 years, and this is now going back to the 1990s, had already massively reduced the concentration of these glucosinolates. And we were finding that their ability to essentially not be susceptible to the complex of pests and diseases that attack cruciferous crops because you've got to remember that these are all natural pesticides they're all secondary plant metabolites in their own right and there was a real correlation between lower levels of these and an increased need to use large amounts of pesticides Within those agroecosystems, that would lead to pesticide resistance and all the other problems. And of course, as soon as you've got pesticides going into the system, you cannot have a balanced, complex system. You cannot have a a, a complex, balanced, you know, agroecosystem that has five trophic levels, which you need to keep the system in check. And So when I talked to, I remember talking to a leading oncologist at Imperial College said, you know, it's fascinating. I've done some reading on these glucosinolates and not only do they completely stabilize the agro-ecosystem, I've seen they've got some pretty potent anti-cancer properties. Oh, yeah. And this leading oncologist looked at me as if I had two heads and had no idea about plant compounds and basically was very dismissive of the fact that there could be something in these blooming broccoli and Actually, cabbages and things that yeah. fight cancer are you joking and that was that was a real wake up call you know it was just one conversation and after this article that was in the observer magazine about dietary simplification a us company asked me to speak to some of their distributors about the importance of diverse nutrients, and then it got into what was happening with EU rules about, you know, trying to uh, place regulation around natural substances, and that was originally around vitamins and minerals. So at the very time that I was being asked to have a permanent position at Imperial after seven years postdoc, I was also being introduced to the whole nutritional industry. And initially, I was not a fan of the idea of taking supplements at all, because I was really coming from the school of everything you need to eat is in a food. So, but then one of these companies came along and said, but we have only natural sources of nutrients, and we're being asked to go through a very difficult regulatory process. What do you think of this? And they showed me the list of the things that were going to be allowed. And I remember looking at them, because I was pretty familiar with what's in plants. And I said, well, all of the things that they're allowing are straight out of, you know, Merck catalogue, and don't exist in nature. And oh, I see what you've got does exist in nature. So that's really how ANH kick started to address that one problem. And in dealing with that problem, because we took a major case to the High Court in London and then got expedited hearing to the European Court of Justice, I came across Jeff, Jeff Bland. And Jeff was a thought, my God, this guy is sort of taking on the system to protect natural sources of nutrients. I'd like to to meet him. So I met Jeff in 2003, just when we'd started that work. And We've known each other ever since. And of course, there are many aspects that Jeff has kind of been supporting, looking at the idea of nutrition as information that spoke to the same language that I was dealing with, looking at complexity, looking at interactions, and and of course, looking at function. Because for us in an ecological framework, we don't want to look at disease or death. You know, if you imagine you're trying to understand how a rainforest works or a coral reef works, you don't want to wait until, you know, all the animals you're trying to study are lying dead on the forest floor. You want to see when their imbalance is at the earliest possible stage and then look at what's caused that imbalance. How can I readdress stability within that system? And so I've really spent the last 20 years looking at how you can apply all that learning from complex natural systems and agroecosystems to healthcare. And frankly, a lot of the time, I get quite disappointed with how kind of myopic the whole thing is. We've got to sort of step back and look at the canvas and see how we can play within that, that natural system that follows a bunch of rules that nature created often millions of years ago that we only partially understand so we've got to keep unraveling that and I you know so I come from a place of huge respect for nature as the teacher and you know we are babes in the wood but we're trying to understand the wood and we've got a long way to go and um yeah. Let's not give up on that journey. No,
0: no, not at all. So I'm thinking. So you gave up this this kind of academic career to go and really be an activist in many ways. And when I was reading your story earlier, and what came to mind, and forgive me, but I felt knowing you and even how you look, I had this kind of sense of like the Robin Hood of planetary health. You can borrow that, by the way. I, I that yeah, fantastic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the Robin Hood.
0: Robin Hood. The Robin Hood. <laughs> Robert of Planetary Health and saying, you know, how your inclusiveness, your ability to live in multiple disciplines or silos or worlds. So one of the things that we you speak about. So for many of us, we land up in a space that we're fighting in. And, you know, for me, it's obviously in genetics and nutrigenomics and practitioner training. But when I think of the work you're doing, and I even saw these words together, we talk about science and law, academia and industry. That's a huge amount of landscape to cover, and yet you've been able to have conversations in all these different places to bring together a narrative and a dialogue, and I think that's what you're alluding to, this idea that if we don't tackle the complexity of it across these different conversations and saying, like, very few people I've interviewed who who are doing extraordinary work in changing healthcare and, you know, functional medicine integrative, but haven't tackled the kind of law, like the legal part of it. You know, there haven't been you kind of shutting down dairy farms. And I think that this makes your work quite extraordinary. Plus, I would say, you know, that ANH is an NGO, right? Exactly. It's a not-for-profit, yeah. yeah. it's, it's not-for-profit organisation. So you went from having a very solid career... To becoming this kind of activist in the space and building this conversation which you're still building and i know you're a peacemaker at heart that you're always looking to find the conversation on all sides of the spectrum and bring people together so just in that sense you know what do you think the future of healthcare looks like what do you think we have to look forward to or is it i mean talking to you it's a bit doom and gloom i have to be honest so Is there anything you can give us that's saying like, actually, there's some good stuff happening. We've got some good stuff to look forward to.
1: Yeah, you know, I I think the changes will happen when we kind of take a step back from the canvas and we start to look at the whole system. At the moment in healthcare, we don't do very much that looks at ourselves as one species that interacts in a complex dynamic ecosystem. So we're beginning to see a trend towards ecosystem thinking when we start to think about, for example, our microbiome and not just our gut microbiome, but our overall yes. internal and external um, microbiome. So that, that's a, a trend that moves r- absolutely in the right direction. Another part of that process is seeing the interlinkage that is now happening with the work in agriculture to see the importance of the soil and looking at the soil, you know, rhizosphere and microbiome, and the way in which all of those microorganisms are completely essential in the communication system that plants have between not just plants and microbes, but also plants and insects and the entire agroecosystem. And we know that if we can, you know, understand that system better and understand that our own health is really a function of how we interact with that system. I mean, the food that we eat is the most intimate way that we experience the environment. And so we have to think quite carefully about where that food comes from. So, you know, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, well, processed food isn't very good, but actually it depends what you call processing. I mean, some of the most potent herbal products that you can use for healthcare are processed herbs. So it's not necessarily processing that's the problem. It's what happens to the information that comes from nature and how that sort of translocates into the human body that can become the problem. So, and a lot of people understand something about regenerative agriculture and they know that's a good thing and you've got to look after the soil and it's got to be more than organic because organic is just basically a um free from system of agriculture you leave out chemical fertilizers and pesticides and that's why big ag got into it but it doesn't mean you're growing healthy plants so yeah as you start to understand this this system and understand the the ecological interactions i think we we have a much bigger window into what the real drivers of health are and another trend is that you know we've come out of a system that's been very disease centric so we measure healthcare success by the number of animals that did or didn't drop to the bottom of that forest floor we look at morbidity and mortality and we do very very little in terms of understanding what drives health what drives well-being what drives super health super well-being you know what prevents people from turning up at their doctor's office So that trend is beginning to happen. And I think, you know, as we emerge from a paradigm that's been very locked into randomized controlled trials as a mechanism to compare different therapeutic interventions, particularly pharmaceutical interventions, and move to a world that will look at the way in which lifestyle, 70% of the reasons people show up at a doctor's office are caused by preventable diseases that are caused by our lifestyle 70 percent so we need to find better ways of moving upstream so again within the integrative medicine and functional medicine world is that understanding that function just like dashboard lights in a car or in an airplane when they start blinking at you you know you do something about them before it manifests yeah before it manifests in the expensive breakdown or the seizure you know, 75 miles around the outside lane. Yeah. So we do something about it. But in human healthcare, we kind of wait until the machine breaks down at the side of the road. It's an expensive way. My, you know, if you're going to compartmentalize my approach to science, I I tend to say, look, I'm a multidisciplinarian, And, and, you know, the one thread that ties the different disciplines I work with is sustainability. So if we're going to support this idea of having a more sustainable system of healthcare, it's got to be upstream, it's got to be democratised, and there is a trend. I mean, you you can look at the Vital Directions project that the National Institutes of Health in the United States is running, you can look at the uh, um, Lancet Global Health Programme they are beginning to understand those issues. And they're also beginning to understand the importance of self-care and self-management so that you still abide by fundamental principles of, you know, good medical practice, which is patient-centred healthcare, where the individual has autonomy, where the individual essentially is guided by, not, you know, instructed by, a healthcare yeah, professional not
0: the kind of paternalistic yeah. healthcare
1: so yeah and and, and frankly yeah. right right now i'm kind of a bit disturbed about this slight um well, slight it's a major change that's happened during covid which is just as we were moving into more of a kind of autonomous self care you know understanding that this is the only way of dealing with the huge problem with the burden from chronic and autoimmune and other lifestyle related diseases we've now kind of moved back to not only a paternalistic model but almost an institutional model where the physician the doctor the practitioner almost doesn't have a say because you've got to do what the government says now so i'm i'm really hoping that's a temporary process and i I'm a great believer. I think it's the third law of thermodynamics to every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. reaction. And so so people will react to it and go, hey, let's get back to basics and get back to putting the individual, the patient, at the heart of it. We shouldn't even really call the person a patient because it's you know, we're just individuals. And, And we also another trend, I think, is understanding the difference between healthcare required for the individual and healthcare required for populations, which is the difference between, say, personalised healthcare and public health. They are not the same thing. They're
0: not the same thing.
1: And you need two entirely different recipes for each, but those recipes need to be coherent and work together. Yeah,
0: I often get that, obviously, in genetics, is how does genetics work at a population level versus a personalised level, So, which is a good segue into genetics. So tell me, Rob, you've been... um, around my world for some time and seen my progression through different genetic experiences and so I know you, you dabble and you're very aware of how genetics has been used or is being used so what is your sense around how genetics will be used or will impact this kind of change in healthcare
1: as we move forward? Well yeah it's an interesting question the the bottom line is is you know, whole genome sequencing gives us a lot of information, but it gives us too much information to understand. It's a bit coming back to our forest or our coral reef analogy. It's all there, but it's so great that we can't see patterns and we can't see interactions. So, so I, I find it very interesting to sort of um, juxtapose the idea of a kind of whole genome sequencing approach to looking specifically at SNP arrays you know and and seeing the birth you know we we were very close to yourself and others who were developing tools for practitioners that would be based as as you are with 3x4 in looking at specific low penetrance SNPs, and and that's almost the other side of it and I think it's it's on a journey because essentially I I mean, I've been a a great supporter of GWAS, you know, genome-wide association studies to try and look at patterns. And I think we're moving to this world where we're beginning to see some solid, consistent results. And and frankly, Yale, your work in this field has been some of the most impressive. And we've looked at how we can all work to use some of the more robust combinations of various SNPs because I've also been involved in the areas of toxicogenomics, gen- and you know we if we look at susceptibility to particular environmental chemicals there might be 40 50 60 different polymorphisms yeah. that might impact someone's susceptibility so we need more information and, and of course layered upon that is the epigenetic marking of how that individual through histone modifications methylation etc have permanently changed so it's a super exciting process that I think you know above all from a clinical point of view I think it will help people to prioritize a process of healthcare that makes it accessible you know if you have Fifty changes that you need to make in your diet and lifestyle. Not very many people are going to make fifty changes. You no, know, no. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, well, criticizing the, the Bredesen protocol or anything. Yeah. But, but you need a prioritization system, and I, I, I do think looking at yeah. your SNP profile is a very, very good way into that. On the condition you're still being a good practitioner. And you are doing at all of else. the changes in function that are occurring as a result of those behavioural changes. And, and, of course, I think that's why it also needs to be multidisciplinary because, you know, the behaviour change piece in Please, natural medicine is a massive thing. And so, you know, I, I love the fact that we've, we've got people like BJ Fogg coming into this equation to talk to us about tiny habits that people can start because that, you know, tiny habits. We call them micro
0: moments. Yeah, micro moments. Micro moments. That's what our word is. Every minute of every day, we make decisions and choices that will change our health outcomes. Every minute of every day. It switches on and switches on genes. And that's the whole thing. You know, it's not the big decisions, actually. It's those micro moments of decision making. And that's what I love genetics for. It's just a layer of information that helps us focus. Where should we start this journey? So I think that's a beautiful and brilliant place to end. I think more importantly, we should end, Rob, if you don't mind telling everyone where they can find ANH so they can come see the amazing work that you're doing, get your newsletters, see the kind of conversations that you're having. I don't think there's anyone who would want to miss out where do they find you?
1: So absolutely, easiest thing is go to our website, which is anhinternational.org, Alliance for Natural Health at so anhinternational.org. We've kind of simplified the process of access into it. So you can, you we, we produce a lot of video material as well. We produce a huge amount of articles. So you can go into the read portal, you can go into the visual view portal, or you can go into the audio portal with podcasts. So Absolutely,
0: there's a lot of content. There's the, a lot of amazing huge- content. And the news, the, the, the mail as well, really, really informative. So I highly recommend everyone goes to have a look. This is a really unique space that Rob is, is holding out for us. He's, he's our activist who's really pushing boundaries that we need pushed and also creating this kind of peace circle between everyone so it's quite amazing to be a peacemaker and an activist at the same time so we're trying to
1: do that absolutely We, we one of the things above all particularly we're in difficult situations we have to be respectful of people who have a different view and and this is one of the things i've struggled with with the way in which social media has been controlled is that it's actually prevented a lot of scientific discussion And, and, you know, uncertainty and complexity of the two things we're dealing with. So you need scientific discourse, discussion, interaction, understand where the points of agreement and consensus are, and let's work on the stuff that we don't agree on because, you know, we we only know a little bit about a very complex picture, so we need discourse.
0: Right. Well, that's... (laughs) We need discourse. Let's end it there. I've taken up some fantastic, precious time of yours. I think I've managed to give a really good insight to everyone about this extraordinary human living in the United Kingdom for the Americans. Your work is global and international. You're not specifically in the UK. Um, Most of my interaction with you has actually been in the States. So please, everyone, go and look at ANH International. Rob, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you
1: so much for what you're doing. It's just so exciting to see 3x4 really taking off. It's a fantastic system. It is, And and I love your your whole communication platform as well. And I'm already signed up and I'm looking forward to communicating. I'm I'm
0: looking forward to hearing your voice a lot in the 3x4 community. A lot, Rob. You bring such a unique uh, thing not just one message. It's not going to be enough, Rob. We want to see, really, I you're will, I will, you're add so much value. No, very Excellent. happy
1: to do that. All right. Yeah, thank you thank
0: so you much. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks for today. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast, brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast. And if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3 x 4 slash apply.